welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney, and this is Friday, October 20th, and this is the Crossing Boundaries edition. With me today, I have Sarah O'Donnell. Hello. How are you? Lovely, thank you. Excellent. I have Paula Simons. It seems like only Monday that we were in this studio, (laughs) except now I can see and it's not pitch black. (laughs) It was late on Monday night. It was late. We we recorded that special podcast on the municipal election. It was 11.30 by the time we were finished. Yeah, I think I finished editing about half past one in the morning. Hooray. It was ready for my drive home at 2.30. I enjoyed it. And I did. I listened all right. the way home. Sarah wins. She didn't get home till 3 a.m. on election night. So. And Graham Thompson. We should mention the date every time. Well, I've been trying to do we that We used now. to. Yeah, yeah, we used have to. We, have we not been? Well, then I took over and apparently I just stopped. But ah. now I'm doing it again. Excellent. It helps Excellent. us keep track. It does. Yeah. There we go. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so in addition to the date, what are we doing today? <laughs> We are going to be talking about a few different things involving boundaries. We're going to be talking about the Electoral Boundaries Review, which I know is the sexiest topic in Alberta right now, but it does have a lot of obvious political implications. Um, We're also going to be talking about the new cabinet appointment, which uh, involved crossing a boundary for one MLA earlier on. And we'll be talking about the implications of municipal elections on provincial politics. So crossing boundaries between jurisdictions like what I did there, guys? I do. Thank mm, you. Ten points. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's start off by talking about, as I said, the sexiest topic in Alberta this week, the Electoral Boundaries Commission review. Uh, they released their report yesterday, and now I was expecting it to come, but I didn't know it was coming yesterday. So, oh, what an exciting email that was in my inbox. What are we seeing here? Um, well, what are we seeing? I'm the one who actually went to the yeah, press conference. I, I watched you online. Did you? The one person in the, the room that was just... A row of chairs, and you see you alone <laughs> in this little dark room. And I thought, and I, and I, was, I, got pretty, I, I emailed you, you and said, sit up me straight. And said, sit up straight, you're on TV. <laughs> and there was 21 viewers. It was on, um, really? on YouTube. 21 that, people were that watching That shows it. you just what a big deal this was. No, but I mean, so we do know that, like, I, okay, okay, I'm going to go full nerd here. Electoral boundaries do are it. really important. They we are. We know this because we know that in Alberta they've been such an issue for so long, especially for urban areas that have felt like they are underrepresented by our population as rural areas, the population shrinks there, but the boundaries haven't so much been redrawn. Now, we wondered, would there be any changes from the interim report? Because there were two. You get the interim report from the Electoral Boundaries Commission in May. And then they they put that all out (laughs) to the public to say, what do you think about this? And then they basically came back with virtually the same results, right? They're like, yeah, you know, same thing, heard the same thing. So yeah, this is what we're going to go forward with is... And, and and I guess we should say that it includes a new riding for Edmonton, yes. a new riding for Calgary, and a new riding for the Airdrie area. Yep. What it does, though, because they're not adding ex- and proposing the they weren't allowed to add extra seats in addition to the eighty three, uh, eighty seven. There's, oh there's now eighty seven <laughs> seats. Oh, oh my, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm back in the Stalbank area. Pre- Stalbank. Oh. Right, <laughs> dinosaur that I because am. Because l- last time around they added 
for seats because Stalmac did not want to cut rural seats. Yes. So he just added more seats to the legislature. And and in reviewing Emma's story then, just to be clear, it'll make sure we know where there's going to be losses. There are four ridings in northeast Alberta, Lacklebish, St. Paul, Two Hills, Athabasca, Sturgeon, Redwater, for Saskatchewan, Vegreville, and Bonneville, Cold Lake that become three. There's another conglomeration in uh, central west Alberta that get merged. And then in eastern Alberta, places like uh, Battle River, Wainwright, Cardston, Vermilion, Lloydminster, couple others all get mashed into one and, and they lose they get redistributed so that there's one less exactly and I, and I think part of the reason that this didn't get as much attention maybe is it because these are exactly the same recommendations i mean i already wrote a column when the recommendations came out they're good recommendations is it ideal that we're going to have much larger ridings in the north it isn't i mean let's be honest those are huge ridings to patrol uh, and huge ridings to represent in terms of land mass. But if you're not going to add seats, this is the only fair way to stop the sort of rural gerrymandering. It has not been fair that ridings in rural Alberta, that fewer people send more more representatives to the legislature. So, you know, they had a whole complicated formula of, uh, you know, to try to keep it sort of in a in a cap of how many people per MLA and they had a complicated formula, and they sort of had to cheat the formula in various places. But this is fairer for Edmonton and Calgary. It just it just is, because voters in huge suburban ridings in those two cities were basically voting at a discount. A rural vote was worth about three and a half times that of a, an urban vote. A couple of changes they did make. While the, the principles of the recommendations stay the same, they did change the boundaries of, particularly in southern Alberta, some of those changes. So, for example, Drumheller-Stetler was going to become... They changed some of the boundaries of that and kind of moved it east. During the first set of consultations, they got 729 public um, you know, input-type situations. What do you call them? Feedback? Feedback. Feedback. Yeah, That's a good word. Feedback. I work professionally with words. Um, and then during the inter- after the interim report, they got 609 public feedback. Fe- co- or comments. Yeah, yeah, public comments. And so they did change some of the... Some of the boundaries, but in as in essence, it stayed exactly the same. What the re- recommendations were. The thing is, the reaction to it's been rather muted. Like I've covered mm. these over the years when it's been a lot of angry people about what the boundaries were going to be, especially twenty years ago. Yes, I am that old. <laughs> and this Back time around, it's relatively muted. There was one minority re- report yeah, yesterday, a, a dissenting yeah. report. Which so is what happened? Is there's five people on this commission. Three are appointed by the government and two by the opposition. Mm-hmm. This is how it basically works. And one of those appointed by the opposition had her own dissenting report basically saying that it didn't have to give more seats to Edmonton and Calgary. That's Commissioner Gwen Day. That's right, uh, who was appointed, well, uh, um, named by the Wild Rose slash PCs, the opposition. Mm. So, Well, it was Wild Rose at that as point, well, but, yeah. but they talked to the PCs oh, apparently. But, oh. So, yeah, so Makes the opposition. Sense. Anyway, so, but there was no real outcry. Even the UCP yesterday, their reaction was rather muted to it. Like, they weren't really angry. I I, uh, emailed uh, the UCP and said, look, are there any um, really angry UCP members who feel that they'll be in 
a, a contest now against their own members for the nomination. You know, for, for not another like MLAs fighting each other for the nomination, which has actually happened in the past with the PCs. And I haven't heard back from anybody. So I think that we gauge sometimes the interest um, and what's actually going to impact on this based on the reaction from people, from the public, from the opposition, and from MLAs. And so far, it's been relatively quiet. I mean, I've certainly seen some very angry people on Twitter who say that this is unfair. No, I know. It's so unusual. Angry people on Twitter who are saying this is taking, you know, this is taking power away from rural Alberta, and rural Alberta is already, on, you know, maybe not underrepresented in the legislature, but they feel that rural Alberta interests are not getting the attention they deserve and that this is a way that the NDP is trying to fix the system to make it, you know, make it better for the NDP. It's important to note that this is an independent commission. And frankly, I mean, this is a, should be a nonpartisan issue. If you live in Edmonton, no matter what your politics are, you should want the people of Edmonton to be appropriately weighted and represented in the legislature. It just doesn't make any sense for city votes to count for less and less and less. I mean, this is this is a problem nationwide. I mean, I was surprised and not surprised to read a couple of years ago that the people who are the most affected by this kind of weird imbalance are the voters of downtown Toronto. I mean, I know Edmontonians not have really, we're not supposed to have any sympathy for people in downtown Toronto. Boo, but, yes. you know, in, in a country like ours, where you've got huge land masses and very spread out populations mm. interspersed with extremely dense urban nodes, this is a problem with the way Canada works. I'm sure it's the same in Australia. It's exactly the same. You know, um, you can't you can't achieve the perfect balance of giving geographic representation to far-flung rural populations and also balancing those extremely, uh, in contrast, high-density urban agglomerations. And what they could do, sorry, sorry quickly, is um, they could be giving more money to MLAs who, to, to run their offices yes. who, who have these huge ridings like at the basket. What they could mm. do is say, look, you have this gigantic riding, so we're going to give you more money than other MLAs who are in Edmonton, for example, to have more offices, even more staff, to make sure that they get better representation in a riding that's gigantic. I think that would be a very fair compromise. I spoke with Nathan Cooper yesterday. Um, about this at length. And I, I tried to get out of them that he was angry, but he just wouldn't say he was angry. But he did say that for them, and I asked him about the political implications of this, because of course, you know, there's that rural versus urban divide and particularly the Wild Rose side of the UCP, all of their power, the majority of their power is rural. And he would not, he wouldn't be caught up by that. Ah, damn it, Nathan. But he, um, he kind of said, well, no, the political implications, whatever. Like, we're a good united party now. And look, we've got power in Calgary and it's going to be fine. We've got, we can make roads into the urban, into the urban centers. But we are worried about how this is a lack of representation for the rural folks. So he just wouldn't weigh in on the anger side. Which I, I was disappointed about. And I was thinking <laughs> on my way in that, I mean, it's it's not that these lines are forever, as we know. We know that in another, is it every 10 years yeah, they review them? So years. Graham will have another round of reviews. <laughs> to, to oh, yeah. Where okay, I'm going to be here. I'll be yeah. hanging on. Yeah. And uh, so, it, you know, we'll, we'll be able to gauge over the next decade um, how how it does work and what the impact is and if it's not working they can change it will be but there's opportunity it's not forever is my point yeah. I thought the other thing that was interesting is that they have also said that they want writings named for geography yeah. and not for people because yeah. there was a, a movement uh, to rename a writing in Calgary from Mamet Buller who died so tragically in a in a 
highway accident where he was trying to rescue snow-stranded travelers. Um, but they said, look, you know, we don't think things should be named for, for people, uh, but they should be helpful names that tell you where you live and where to go <laughs> to vote, uh, and that it's better to name other things after people. But, I mean, we still will have ridings named for the people. Yeah, for that is they're. another one they yeah. won't. Well, yeah, and you're right. In eight to ten years, I guess we'll, we'll get see. to do it all again. Maybe they'll want to add more seats. Oh, and Nathan Cooper did say he was happy they didn't add more seats because Alberta doesn't need more seats. So, you know, that was a decision made by government and the opposition was totally happy with it. Okay, let's move on to the new cabinet appointment that happened this week on Tuesday. Sandra Jansen, the former PC MLA from Calgary, who crossed the floor uh, a year ago. Well, no, 11 months to the day on Tuesday, (laughs) was appointed the Minister of Infrastructure on Tuesday. Graham, I would like to probably rate your level of surprise as a minus 10. (laughs) Well, I've been predicting this for a year. I guess if you do 11 months to the day. Well, exactly. Well, actually, no. (laughs) Actually, I was talking about her leaving the caucus before it actually happened. Oh, good grief. So it's a year. Um, the PC caucus, that is. Yeah, this is completely predictable. Last year when she crossed to the NDP, I thought the clock starts ticking how soon before she actually gets into cabinet because the NDP wants – they need people uh, in Calgary, the MLAs in Calgary. It's not the strongest bench strength of any political party. They need strong people from Calgary, and uh, Jensen is strong. She's got experience as a minister under the Redford government, and um, she does not back down. She's a real fighter, and I thought that um, it's a matter of time. Also, because politically as well, the NDP right now is focused on Calgary. They're all about yeah. Calgary, you know, winning more support. She's Minister of Infrastructure. That's basically where the government is putting a lot of its money that is borrowing. The debt is basically infrastructure debt. There's other debt there as well. But she is the one in charge, basically, of uh, building things. And this is them rebuilding uh, both physically and politically uh, in Calgary. I was initially surprised that she was named infrastructure minister because I had assumed she would get something more in the social services kind of edge of the portfolio. But as as Graham astutely wrote – I mean, she's basically the minister in charge of sucking up to Calgary by building them stuff. Uh, I'd love that on a business card. (laughs) (laughs) On a door. Yeah, that'd be great. You want a cancer center? You got a cancer center. You want an LRT? You got an LRT. You want some more schools? Here's some more schools. Um, Love us, Calgary. (laughs) Love us. And, of course, this also um, splits uh, Brian Mason's duties because he was the minister of transportation and infrastructure, uh, which are you know that that's a lot of that's a lot on his plate. So and he's government house leader too. Yeah. So, so ribbon cuttings to attend. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> now he now Brian Mason can just make the transportation system operate. What I thought was interesting though about the way Notley positioned uh, this cabinet position though was yeah it's about building stuff but they weren't talking about anything that we didn't already know that Calgary was going to get. We know they're going to get the cancer center. We know that the LRT line is being built. We knew all of it but. I thought it was interesting to hear her talking about the focus on all the jobs that this was going to create in Calgary. Yeah. So it seems as much as it's going to be about Jansen talking, uh, focusing and keeping the building projects on track, it is also going to be about talking about job creation. Now, whether that 
how much that's going to actually resonate in Calgary, I don't know. But I just thought that I heard her talking an awful lot about jobs as opposed to just, you know, bricks and mortar. And when you say her, that was not just uh, Sandra Jansen talking about that. That was Premier no, Rachel that's what Notley. I mean. yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And, and Sandra Jansen too. I mean, obviously that was a talking point that they were given earlier. But um, it was interesting the number of times that Premier Rachel Notley mentioned Calgary during the little speech that was bringing Sandra Jansen in. She, I've never heard her say Calgary so many times in a single <laughs> It'd be a very dangerous speech. drinking game. <laughs> oh, you'd be hammered. Now, it wasn't just um it wasn't just Sandra Jansen who was um well, she was the only cabinet appointee. There are a couple of little other appointees. We had uh Jessica Littlewood from Fort Saskatchewan, Vegreville. She is an NDP MLA, obviously, Emma. Uh, Parliamentary Secretary for Small Business, so she's going to be working with Darren Bellis, who is the Minister of Trade and, and other economic stuff. Technical title there. And we had Annie McKittrick, who is a backbencher from Sherwood Park, MLA. Oh, and she's going to be the Parliamentary Secretary for Education, which I thought was an interesting thing to a point, but she's also taken the purple out of her hair now. She usually has a big purple streak, but she didn't on Tuesdays. You know, it's interesting. And whenever I see a government making up these imaginary baby cabinet positions, I always think, oh, yeah, we, we didn't actually need those people. But, you know, I, I suspect this is because although Notley is still polling very, very strongly in metro, like in the central Edmonton, um, those uh, suburban ridings are going to be harder for them to hang on to. She wants to give those suburban MLAs a little more profile. Um, uh, and that makes logical sense strategically how badly Alberta needed a parliamentary secretary for education uh, I think that's a <laughs> is there something to be said though for two for those positions being something of a training ground right for yeah. for you know preparing getting more into the scope of being in charge of something so potentially uh, you know training for future full cabinet portfolio I don't know but that's to me that's what I might do if I wasn't quite sure and you know you were like oh I think you've got some you know like to, to give them a bit of a, a yeah, on the job training also uh, during the announcements on Tuesday Brian Malkinson a Calgary MLA um, he was he's going to sit on Treasury Board and member Cortez Vargas is sitting on a review committee she's t- sitting on a review committee yeah, and, and they again are another MLA who is from that suburban just outside of Edmonton area I say quickly on the uh, parliamentary secretaries they're not getting paid any more money and they won't actually sit in cabinet so it's not really even that powerful a position I, I went along early just to you know stake out government house as one does just to see who might show up and Sandra Jansen turned up unsurprisingly and then all of her family came along as well so it was pretty pretty obvious what was going to happen there and Brian Malkinson he rocked up in his big truck and he almost hit the curb he just like he just like we're like holy crap Brian that was quite the parking job mate he's like yep that's my winter truck and then off he goes inside another thing about Jansen is uh, politically it's a signal to people who are progressive conservatives the old yeah. PCs that this is the way to go with it you know you've got this this very progressive uh, PCer who left the ND, sorry, left the PCs, went to the NDP. And it's going to be a signal. Like she's going to be the um, the poster person for people who are progressives. Where are you going to vote? Well, look um, at where Jansen went, and she's very happy being in the NDP. Now, I mean, certainly. While we're talking about angry people on Twitter, there were angry people on Twitter saying, again, you know, how dare she cross the floor? How dare she? Like, folks, I'm going to say it again. Floor crossing is built into the rules of the Westminster parliamentary tradition. It's like a big game of Red Rover. You are not elected uh, to be 
I mean, this is not like proportional representation where you're elected to be part of the party. You're elected to be an MLA. And part of being an MLA is that at certain points you decide which party you want to sit with. This is how it works. Um, <laughs> if you, I mean, do sometimes people cross the floor for craven reasons and to achieve promotion? Absolutely. In the history of Canada, there are many people who have crossed the floor for less than altruistic motives. But to say that floor crossing is bad is ridiculous and hypocritical because it's actually part of the rules. I thought this might be the point in the Notley government's life where we might see a significant shuffle. I mm. figured, you know, halfway through, if she was going to do a big shakeup, now would be the time. But that didn't happen. So I was wondering, I wanted to ask Graham if you think that there will be any future, or is this is this what no. we're going to see from It'll here be on? Minor tinkering, because again, they haven't got a lot of bench strength. The people, mm-hmm. like the, this, the, the NDP caucus, um, people who were elected in Calgary who never really campaigned didn't expect to get elected. There's not mm-hmm. a lot of people in there who have a lot of experience, and so the pool to which from which to draw is not very deep. Also, um, Notley is very loyal to her people and vice versa, mm-hmm. and I don't see much infighting in at all really in, in cabinet. So I, I think this is basically going to be this it. will be the team that goes into the next election. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian okay. Mason was so excited when Notley told him that he gave her a hug. Yeah, but the thing is, because it's important <laughs> to mention that um, like Mason was not. Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. It was Minister of Transportation and Minister of Infrastructure. Two different departments, two uh, deputy ministers reporting to him, two completely different jobs. And he is very, very happy to have one of them gone. So let's move on now to the implications of the municipal elections on provincial politics. Now, I did want to touch on this because, well, it's interesting. And it's come a lot. it's come up a lot in conversation this week ever since the... Uh, Municipal elections on Monday. What a time. What a time that was. So who wants to jump in first? Paula, you look like you're itching to say something about that. How how surprising. No, go ahead, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Paula's itching to say something. Well, I actually thought, I I mean, Graham did have an interesting conversation with Schweitzer about it. Now I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) (laughs) You talk amongst yourselves. Well, as I was saying, Graham, sure, okay. Um, (laughs) Graham did have a really interesting conversation with Doug Schweitzer, one of the UCP leadership Mm -hmm. candidates about this. And you should tell us about that, Graham. There we go. Sorry, I'm going Um, into host mode now again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, Schweitzer, of course, is the uh, one of the three candidates in the UCP leadership race. The one you forgot about. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the one that um, wasn't even included in the recent public opinion poll. Oh, poor Doug. He's such a nice guy. He is a progressive conservative, very proudly, you know, comes from the old red Tories, and he's a progressive, and he's been saying all along that the UCP party cannot turn too far to the right. It has to be more moderate, more mainstream, where most Albertans are, and he's talking, he's pointing to the election results in Calgary, sort of a, a proxy war between the NDP and the Conservatives. You had Nahed Nenshi, uh, sort of the progressive mm-hmm. voice, uh, the, the mayor, of course. And you had Bill Smith, who was actually like literally a former member of the PCs. He was actually president yeah. of the PC party, uh, running against him. And uh, there was talk that maybe Nenshi could be defeated. And there was some, at least one public opinion poll showing that would be the case. But, of course, Nenshi won. And by, by uh, you know... It wasn't a squeaker. Either. No, he won by thirty thousand. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe three thousand votes. It was. Yeah, he he won a, a significant victory, and so Schweitzer is saying to all the conservatives in Calgary who think that this city is all it's always conservative. We'll always vote conservative. We'll go for a conservative type candidate. Uh, next election, the NDP is going to be crushed by the UCP. He is saying, be careful. 
because the conservatives got really smug with Bill Smith thinking they could defeat Nancy mm. last Monday. And guess what? Nancy won. The people came out, young people came out. I guess there's even, according to Schweitzer, NDP um, organizers helping out Nancy, and they defeated Bill Smith. And so Schweitzer is saying, be careful, conservatives. You don't go too far to the right. Don't get too smug. You can't take Calgary for granted. You can't take anything in Alberta for granted because it's Alberta, bless it. And especially, I mean, from this distance, Bill Smith seems to have run a very lackluster campaign in which he never really gave anybody a reason to vote for him except to say, Nenshi bad, Nenshi left, Smith good, Smith right. (laughs) Uh, You know, and and, and Smith and, and the Calgary Flames and Calgary Stampeders who were seemingly leading this campaign in some ways, uh, you know, they got themselves into a situation where if you if you set out to fight a proxy war, you'd better win because mm. otherwise your proxy partners look, look pretty weak. And it's interesting because by comparison, um, Edmonton's municipal election campaign was almost devoid of that kind of larger provincial ideological um, backroom maneuvering. Uh, you know, we got a pretty middle-of-the-road city council. There are people more to the left and there are people more to the right. But, you know, apart from Aaron Paquette, who's the new MLA for Ward 4, who was formerly a provincial NDP candidate, and he Mm -hmm. certainly had NDP people out working for him, uh, you didn't see too many other candidates who had that kind of direct party affiliation. Sarah Hamilton, but, though, she yes, was a it, former PC staffer and a lot of P- yes. former PCers helped run her campaign. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but and she for, had the support but, of Mandel and people but, like but that. former PCs, if you know what I mean, they aren't UCP kind of. There were other candidates and yeah. it's sprinkled in different races that certainly did have some um, backing from UCP members and the people who have who had stepped away to help on those campaigns. Um, maybe not as much. And I think that one of the issues was that there was a feeling that the conservative leadership race had sucked a lot of the uh, um, attention from the municipal races that that could have been there otherwise here in Edmonton. And certainly there was no one backed by that kind of right-wing money, right-wing power block who who put up a candidate against Don Iverson. Right, because you've got Bill Smith, of course, like Alan Holman worked on his campaign, and that's he was helping Kenny's, Jason Kenny's campaign, who's running for the UCP. There's a lot of, yes, <laughs> there are a lot of crossovers, actually, I believe, with people who were working on Kenny's campaign and people who worked on Bill Smith's campaign, and Bill Smith lost. So, I mean, it is an interesting argument that Schweitzer, made, that Schweitzer makes about taking things for granted and just assuming that because it's conservative, it's going to be a winner. Yeah, and, and this sort of sense that they were going to take back Calgary, it's the same kind of rhetoric that you see from the yeah. UCP. And it, it, it is this extraordinary sense of entitlement. And entitlement doesn't even it, – it, it's like a feeling like they all believe somehow that the province has been – captured and brainwashed by the NDP, and if only they just show up, people will throw off the thrall of socialism and and come back to the fold, and I don't think it's going to be that easy. Let's not pretend, though, that there isn't a a serious amount of discontent in Calgary and that Bill Smith was able to with as you point out not a very good campaign tap into a lot of that I mean then she had a much harder run than you would think that a very popular mayor the hero of the Calgary flood ought to have had you know had we looked at it so um, you know people in Calgary are mad they are angry when I see my friends and my family down there they are not happy with anything so you know I just I don't think we can just say that yeah that you're right. The polls. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. You're right. That the polls are showing how the NDP is anything? doing so badly. I think if Smith had won, that'd be a much more. Uh, that'd be a bigger weather vane, so to speak, than Nancy winning, 
um, has less, I think, impact than Bill Smith winning. If Smith had won, mm. then you could say, yeah, the conservatives are going to go back, and they're, the big tidal wave is going to come back for the conservatives in Calgary. I think Nancy won. I think it may be less impactful in terms of getting back to this anger you're talking about because um, local politics in Alberta doesn't always reflect what's going to happen uh, on the provincial scene. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you do have people who win elections, especially in Calgary, who are liberal-type mayors when the city is overall conservative. Now, that may be changing, but uh, I think the, the good point that Sarah makes to remind us that um, the polls right now are showing the NDP is in the toilet when it comes to Calgary. But we can't always believe polls, can we, Graham? Well, there is that whole other issue, <laughs> but there's no time. <laughs> or, or is there? Yeah, Main Street doesn't just have egg on its face. It has kind of like a whole, like one of those buffet tables where they're making the omelets for you. They got a whole buffet of omelets on their face. The whole tray of scrambled egg <laughs> yeah. has been tipped up into Queen Maggie's face. Yep. Okay, and on that note, uh, let's move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things we have read or listened to or seen lately that we think you might also enjoy. Although in Graham's case, books, things we're going to read. <laughs> in Graham's case, the same books two weeks in a row. Sarah, what do you have for us this week, mate? Graham has done some excellent features on some interesting books lately <laughs> that sure I think has. you Good should job, uh, that you should you should listen to him seriously. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to recommend um, an episode of the IRE radio podcast, so the Investigative Reporters and Editors podcast. Okay, this is kind of nerdy in the way that Electoral Boundaries is nerdy, but it was good. <laughs> it's called The Adjustment Factor. They posted it on September 26th, and they talked to uh, a former Chicago Tribune reporter, Jason Grotto, who really did a deep, 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 deep dive into property taxes in that city and how they were calculated, and found out with colleagues that uh, their system of assessing property values was, in fact, broken and benefited the wealthy and burdened the poor. So people in poor areas were having their homes incredibly overvalued and therefore having to pay more taxes um, than people in wealthy areas who were having their homes undervalued and paying less taxes. Um, and uh, it was a two-year investigation, um, all kinds of interesting things about uh, freedom of information laws in the U.S., and it was real good. That whole podcast is really good. The previous episode about a, a preacher in Florida was interesting, too, so... Always a good podcast. Nice. Paula? On Saturday evening, I will be at the St. Albert Public Library at their Star Fest, which is part of the Lit Fest, sort of like a companion to Lit Fest in Edmonton. And I will be interviewing two Canadian writers, Emily Schultz and Trevor Cole, who have each written books about bootlegging in the Prohibition days. Emily Schultz's book, The Men Who Walk on Water, is a historic novel, but Trevor Cole who is probably best known in Canada as a novelist, a great novelist, has written this amazing true crime history book about a guy named Rocco Perry, who was the king of the bootleggers in Hamilton, Ontario. He was... He wasn't with the mafia because he didn't believe in guns, but he had one of the largest organized crime empires in Canadian history. And it is a fantastic book. It looks at uh, Perry's connection to all the political players of the day. At one point, Paul Martin Sr. was his defense attorney. Um, so he was he was sort of mobbed up with lots of movers and shakers in Ontario politics. And it's a particularly timely book because as we move into legalization of marijuana, while the United States does not, uh, there's certainly the potential for the same kind of dynamic. Because the way Rocco Perry made his money is that it was perfectly legal to drink 
in Quebec and in Ontario for much of the time that he was in operation, but not in the States. So they just took their nice Canadian whiskey, um, some of it not so nice, and, <laughs> and, and transferred it across the border. And so as I was reading it, I had a lot of thoughts about how the parallelism of of 100 years ago and today. That sounds good. Um, I am going to recommend a piece from BBC Magazine called Can We Teach Robots Ethics? Personally, I'm terrified of robots. I won't even <laughs> let my husband buy a Roomba because I don't want to think it's probably going to take over my apartment, so I will have no part of it. Um, but it does kind of, it starts off with the question of um, self-driving cars, but then it really goes deeper than that. It talks about autonomous weapons, and which I didn't know was a thing until recently, and it, it, it approaches this whole... Um, um, philosophical issue of teaching robots ethics, how it can be done, if it can be done, and what are the problems associated with humans and robots? It is, whether you love or hate robots, it's probably an interesting <laughs> read. Um, I worship my robot overlords, if you're listening. Graham, what do you have for us? I know you're making fun of me because two weeks ago I mentioned uh, a book by uh, Ed Struzik called Firestorm. <laughs> and then I actually read the book and mentioned it last week. It's a really good book, so I will not mention <laughs> That my review comes out this weekend <laughs> on Firestorm. No, I'm not mentioning it's, that at all. I am not mentioning that. I actually they'll mention that it's probably going to be posted online by about lunchtime Friday. Well, and I'm not even going to talk about that. <laughs> no, I, I, you don't have to because I'm. What going I will to. talk about. It's good is that we're I, not talking about that. Wildfires. I saw a movie last night. Opened up. It's called uh, Only the Brave. It's about um, the true story on 19 uh, firefighters in the U.S. Uh, who shots who were uh, overtaken by a fire. I think it was in Arizona three or four years ago, three years ago. And as, as Josh Brolin's in it, it's a really well-done movie. Um, and it gives you a glimpse into the dirty, dangerous job that wildfire fighters do. Like, you know, the, the fire we had in Fort McMurray, for example, would be uh, probably a good analogy in terms of just the danger these guys face and how it's, uh, it's an amazing – it's really well done. The movie's got amazing um, effects. But it does give you a glimpse into the danger that people who – uh, face these wildfires. Uh, well, I mean, just have to, have to deal with just this week, a young man tragically lost his life fighting one of those grass yeah. fires in southern Alberta. So, you know, we don't always think we think. I think of forest fires as being more deadly, but it was those grass mm-hmm. fires can be as they're very fast. Moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Sarah. Paula, Graham, and Sean Butts. Thank you all so much for joining me. Sean Butts is, of course, our videographer who was here t- making a short recording of this to put online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all the past episodes of the Press Gallery podcast. You can also subscribe, which is super good to do because then you get all of the latest episodes directly to your device. And we're available on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. So, I mean, basically all your options are covered there. So just go in, hit subscribe, and you'll get it as soon as I've edited it <laughs> and put it online, which is generally sometime on a Friday or 1 o'clock in the morning after a municipal election. Um, join us again this time next week on the Press Gallery. Press Gallery.